The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Tuesday, October 23rd, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And let us use this time together, you and I, to talk about some misleading statistics. It's no one's fault. I don't think that many people are consciously using these statistics wrong. But there is a certain kind of statistic that is said to illustrate a situation, but it really obfuscates. Okay, enough with the assonance. I will now be tangible. Let's use this one stat that you've heard a lot. Let's use it as the way into the stat I really want to talk about. And our introductory stat is income inequality. Income inequality has grown in the U.S. That's true, and that is a bad thing. Maybe not as bad as some people say, but it certainly has some bad aspects to it. All true, 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 true. But income inequality is really more of a roundabout way of getting at the truly bad thing than you might think. So income inequality, as you know, is the gap between the richest, pick a percent, 1%, 10%, 0.1%, depends on where you want to go with this, the gap between the richest and either the middle or the poorest or some other quartile of society. And I don't have to tell you what income inequality, what these statistics show is that the rich are getting richer than the poor and the middle class. Yes, we understand this about the rich. That's why they call them rich. They do have more money than than us. But here's the thing. The real problem isn't that the rich is getting richer per se. It's how the poor or the middle class or simply everyone else, if you want to talk about the other 90%, is doing. How they're doing in nominal power. How they're doing in real purchasing power. How they're doing in terms of standard of living. How they're doing as a share of the overall pie. In the U.S., yeah, the rich are getting super wealthy and the poor are stagnating. That's a problem. Why? I say because of the latter, not the former. The poor, by the way, in recent years are actually doing a lot better than they have been um, two or three or five years ago. The problem, though, is that the poor are not getting rich enough. I will illustrate this to you with an anecdote. Let's say you live on a block and all your neighbors, you have six neighbors and they earn $100,000 a year and you earn $70,000 a year. So that block has income inequality. And I said to you, I will now help you solve the problem of income inequality. I will make this block less unequal. And here's how I'm going to do it. I will deduct 10000 from their salary and deduct 5000 from yours. Now there's less income inequality. Do you sign up for that? No, of course you don't sign up for that. Now I'll admit I'm simplifying this a little bit, but not a lot. To the extent that income inequality is an explanation for why the poor or the middle isn't growing, it's somewhat useful. But the really useful thing is just talking about how the middle or poor are not growing. So what that stat does is it's a stat about the relative relationship between two other statistics. And I'm saying that at least one of those other statistics that holds most of the explanatory power of the stat. We have another situation just like that running rampant in our political discourse at the moment. Here it is. I don't have the number to show you, but I can tell you this. We talk about a gender gap in politics. The Democrats ahead by 25 points among women in our poll. Um, with men, though, the Republican advantage has actually increased recently huh. in our poll up to 14, almost a 40 point gap. Ah, the gender gap. Now, everything Kornacki said there is true. It's always true if Kornacki says it, but it's a little misleading. More misleading are ways that other publications, non-Kornacki publications, 
pose this problem. Axios headline, the GOP's gender gap problem. And then they proceed to show a chart that has the popularity of the Democratic Party among women. They're getting a lot more popular and Republicans are getting a lot less popular. This, by the way, is not the gender gap. It is, I think, the relevant statistic that people should be using. Instead, they're talking about the gender gap. The New York Times had one of these online videos. It was headlined, Why the GOP's Gender Gap is More Than Just an Optics Problem. For Republicans, this all points to a problem that's bigger than optics. Then the video goes on to detail how few female Republicans there are in Congress, and it concludes. Those small numbers mean the GOP gender gap is unlikely to shrink anytime soon. Couple things. There isn't really a gender gap problem per se. I can prove it. If you think the gender gap is a problem for the GOP, then you would think that worsening the gender gap or widening the gender gap should hurt the GOP even more. But in fact, I could double the gender gap and the GOP would love it if the way I doubled it was to make men, instead of just being two or three points more pro-GOP than more Democrat, make them 30 or 40 points more GOP than pro-Democrat. So that would absolutely create a chasm in terms of a gender gap, but the GOP would love it. So the GOP doesn't have a gender gap problem. The GOP has a women hate them problem. The problem is that the GOP has repelled women to a remarkable degree. This really needs to be all we're focused on to explain why they might do rather poorly in the midterms. The GOP appeals to men, but only by a couple points. Don't look at the relationship between those two stats, the difference between how the GOP appeals to men and how they appeal to women. Just look at the one stat that explains everything you need to know about Republican weakness. Women these days hate the GOP, 25%. The problem is that women hate you. I think talking about the gender gap actually reveals some sexism. So reporting that Republicans are loathed by women, that's not sexist. That's the opposite of sexist. Let's get into the reasons why. But just like we think that African-American or Hispanic, we think those are races, and maybe we think white, well, that's just like a default setting. When we talk about the gender gap, we're always talking about one gender, aren't we? If I said, let's talk about gender issues, what issues do these conjure in your mind? Would the issues include fantasy football and scratching your balls? That doesn't seem like a gender issue. But if male is a gender, that's a gender issue because gender gap is really just a stand in for what we're really talking about or should be, which is women's preferences, women's electoral preferences. Women are usually more pro-Democrat than men are. This year, they're way more pro-Democrat than men are. Oh, and by the way, women are the majority in America, but they're an even greater majority in terms of voters. So this whole gender gap discussion can just come down to the majority of voters, one type of voter, which is to say women, the majority of voters hate you. Problem for the party they hate. So in summary, statistics expressed as a relationship to other statistics are not as useful as statistics expressed cleanly. And my fantasy football team and balls are fine. Thank you. How dare you ask? On the show today, I get all gubernatorial in the spiel. Don't know about a blue wave in Congress, but in the governor's races, whoa boy, it's cobalt. I'm not saying the governor's map is trending deep blue, but Gary Kasparov just called to concede. Hoo-yah, dorky chess pun. But first, Art Cullen is an Iowa editorialist 
who recently won a Pulitzer Prize, a Pulitzer Prize for a newspaper with the smallest circulation of any Pulitzer Prize winner. Art Cullen loves the land, he loves words, and he will make you love either soil or his words at the conclusion of this interview. Let me tell you about the next Slate Live event that I'm involved in. Slate's best political minds will break down the midterm elections and possibly just break down, depending on the results of the midterm elections, in a live conversation in Brooklyn. It'll be me, Jamel Bowie, Dahlia Lithwick, and Jim Newell at the Polanski Shakespeare Center. I can walk there. I know where that is. That will be the Thursday after Election Day, which is to say November 8th. That will be November 8th. Join us for the lively recap discussion. We'll take your questions too. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets to that event. If... During 2016-2017, uh, you let your subscription to the Storm Lake Times lapse. Boy, was that a boner. Because that newspaper, paid circulation around 3,000, became, we believe, the smallest newspaper to win a Pulitzer Prize. And it wasn't just the newspaper, it was Art Cullen and his series of editorials that won the prize for himself and the paper. He is now out with a new book called Storm Lake, a chronicle of change, resilience, and hope from a Heartland newspaper. Hello, Art. Thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So I've read the uh, entire book. I got a history lesson in the history of the lake and the region and the politics. And my God, every famous political figure from Iowa somehow or other seems to flow through uh, Storm Lake over there. But what I really want to talk about is the issue that you were editorializing about. So why don't you tell us, and remember, our listeners aren't as well-read or well-versed in in agriculture. So why don't you give to us, you know, eaters of corn, but not growers of corn, a little bit of an overview of what the issue was that you came to editorialize about? Okay, great. Uh, yeah, Storm Lake is located on the western edge of uh, the Des Moines lobe of the Wisconsin Glacier. And and so what the glacier did is it laid this big, flat expanse of, of prairie in the middle of Iowa. And it's the richest corn growing region in the world. It's got uh, the uh, the perfect growing season, the richest soil. It's just ideal for growing corn. But since about 1980, the climate has been getting wetter, about 5% wetter per decade, according to Iowa State University research. And what happened is we were getting, uh, we had to remove that water from that flat ground. And so we, we about doubled the size of our underground drainage system. Mm-hmm. And as as Iowa got wetter, it started delivering more and more fertilizer-rich water to that underground drainage system, which then flows into rivers and streams and eventually ends up in the Mississippi River. Right. So fertilizer is good for land, but not good for water, right? Right. And what it does is it, uh, uh, ammonia, nitrogen fertilizer, creates something called nitrate, 
in the water. And that creates everything from blue baby syndrome in infants to thyroid cancer if uh, the levels are high enough. And uh, about 92% of the surface water pollution in Iowa comes from production agriculture, that is corn and soybeans. Right. So was it someone's honest mistake that allowed this fertilizer into the water? Was someone breaking the law? Um, if you're going to drain it, I would think that you'd anticipate that some fertilizer would get into the water. How did it happen and how did it happen so badly? Well, it happens just because we've, we've greatly increased the amount of fertilizer we use in Iowa about uh, fivefold since 1950. And that's uh, as crops became specialized. Uh, we don't have uh, the old McDonald farm anymore. We have huge farms of 1,000 to 2,000 acres that are devoted exclusively to corn and soybeans. And then we have hogs in another location, and we've moved all the cattle out of the state to the southern Great Plains. So we've been uh, applying more and more fertilizer. We're plowing up every inch of grass in Iowa, uh, right up to the rivers, right up to the lakes, to maximize our corn production. And uh, the result is that we're sending all this fertilizer that we don't use. About 30% of the fertilizer we apply leaches into these underground drainage tiles and goes directly to the Gulf of Mexico, where it's creating a dead zone the size of New Jersey and growing. So we can grow 200 bushel per acre corn. We're destroying the shrimping industry in New Orleans. And and from what I understand, if just the last 20% of potential cropland was left unfarmed, it would be a buffer, right? It wouldn't, the water wouldn't leach into the rivers and the, from the lakes into the rivers to the extent it has been. Yeah, we've, uh, there's been research done at Iowa State University by a pretty conventional agronomist. He's not any uh, Birkenstock-wearing quiche eater. He's an agronomist. And uh, he's saying if you pr- plant 10% of a rolling field to native prairie grass, you will reduce stream pollution by 90%. So we know how to do it. We just don't want to do it. Right. By the way, quiche made from fine agricultural products. Let us not degrade quiche in this setting. Probably from caged hens. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the, I guess, city slickers there in Des Moines looked at what was happening in Buena Vista, which was your county, and they wanted to do something about it. And this led to state versus local conflict. And that's, at least when I start in the book and I read through all your editorials, that's when the editorials started happening. Is that right? Correct. The Des Moines Waterworks serves about 500,000 drinking water consumers, and it's a public chartered utility. And they sued Buena Vista, Sac, and Calhoun counties, which are neighboring counties to ours. And they're, you know, they're, we are in the really the, the ground zero of, of corn production and pork production right here. And so they wanted to pick a prime spot to direct their lawsuit, and they directed it here, which is a site of two major meatpacking plants, all tied into that corn complex. And so they wanted to really upset the apple cart, and uh, they did. It became uh, an obsession of the state over the next three years. They sued in 2015. And how did the local government deal with it? Did they kind of uh, put on their hair shirt, and they said, these guys who don't know how our um, neighborhoods and how our communities work or trying to tell us how to live our lives, these uh, these big government regulators, was that the argument? 
Well, that was part of the argument. So what indeed what they said was uh, rather than going with the big time regulators, we'll just go with big time agriculture like Monsanto mm-hmm. and the Koch brothers and we'll let them make our decisions about how we live here in Storm Lake rather than let big government do it. We let big business do it. So we went to the Board of Supervisors, our basic unit of government at the county level. Uh, they call them county commissioners in other states. And we went to the county board of supervisors and said, how are you going to defend this lawsuit that was filed against you since you don't have any legal representation because this is a pollution claim? And they said, essentially, it's none of your business. And uh, we said, what do you mean? They said, well, we have friends. And we said, who are your friends? And they said, get lost. And uh, so it became clear to us that the taxpayers of Buena Vista County uh, weren't defending this lawsuit, but somebody else was. And as it turned out, it was Monsanto and the Koch brothers and the entire fertilizer industry. And they were they were willing to spend any amount of money to defend the status quo. Uh, and the status quo is essentially mining Iowa's natural resources to the point where they might not exist in the next 20 to 30 years. So when the Storm Lake Times started writing about it, and when you started editorializing uh, about it, was whose side was the community on? And um, did you change minds based on your reporting and argument? Well, according to an Iowa poll by the Des Moines Register, about 65% of small town residents, and Storm Lake is a town of ten to 15,000 people, so I qualify that as small town, mm-hmm. about 62% agreed with the Des Moines Waterworks position. Overall, about 70% of Iowans, when you include urban uh, residents, uh, agreed with the waterworks position. So a strong majority of Iowans agreed with the waterworks position. Uh, here in Storm Lake, people were probably a little more sensitive about it since we were on the hook. But I think, yeah, I think that people learned, first of all, how does how do nitrate levels get elevated? And that's by agricultural practices and by climate change. I think we learned that much. And I think we also learned that you cannot stop agriculture from from pursuing its current paradigm, which is uh, all out at all cost. And we've right. got to, we we got to farm every acre. So what happened with how did how did it all end up, or is it still going on with the Des Moines Waterwork and Buena Vista and SAC and uh, the counties that were sued by them? Well, what happened is that we uh, told the counties that they had to release the list of donors to their defense, and they refused to do so. But they did divorce themselves from the fund because they realized they were in violation of Iowa's public records law. Uh, thanks to the Iowa Freedom of Information Council, who wrote a lot of letters on our behalf and did a lot of jawboning. And in the meantime, they'd spent one and a half million of this dark money defending themselves in court. And so about a month or two after they agreed to divorce themselves from this uh, uh, slush account, uh, a federal judge dismissed the case against the counties, saying that they didn't have standing to respond. They didn't have the legal authority to respond to complaints about pollution. In other words, they only have the authority to blow up beaver dens. They don't yeah. have the authority to remediate a pollution claim under the Clean yeah. Water Act. Yeah, they can pollute, they just can't respond to charges of pollution. Exactly. And has the pollution abated at all? No, in fact, it's increasing. And it, it will increase as long as we, have con- we continue to have these epic rain events it's going to just overburden our drainage systems with fertilizer and then as it flushes out we're going to continue to 
apply more and more nitrogen fertilizer to the ground to replace that that we flushed out. And then it just becomes a vicious cycle and we keep pouring more and more money down, literally down the drain. And it's draining right into the Gulf of Mexico and the federal government and state governments. It's like Social Security. It's the third rail. Nobody wants to step there. Bill Stowe of the Des Moines Water Works stepped there and he nearly got electrocuted by the Farm Bureau. How does it affect me or someone who's never been to Iowa? Well, it's affecting you in uh, in terms. It's going to affect you in ter- in terms of higher uh, food prices in the near future. And uh, as we deplete our soil, it only makes sense uh, that you know that you're going to be able to grow less matter from that soil. And also, we're already finding that there are protein declines coming out of Iowa cornfields because of depleted soil and degraded soil. And it's leading to a diabetes epidemic in corn-heavy populations like Latinos and other indigenous peoples. And so you'll, you'll see there's a diabetic problem in Chiapas now in Mexico because of degraded soil. And it's a starchier corn content, and it doesn't have as much protein. And so we're going we're, we're gonna to be getting food that is less nutritious and more expensive because of climate change. Art Cullen, the editor of the Storm Lake Times, he is the winner of the Pulitzer Prize, and his new book is called Storm Lake, A Chronicle of Change, Resilience, and Hope from a Heartland Newspaper. Great talking to you, Art. And thank you, Mike. I appreciate your time. And also, Buena Vista University did host the discussion that we just had, so we'd like to thank them. And now the spiel, a lesson on governors. Yes, let us consider this your gubernatorial, gubernatorial. Right now, 16 states have Democratic governors. Quick, how many don't? It's 34. But you know, only 33 are Republican. An independent leads Alaska, but he's leaving. Don't worry about it too much. The 16 governors right now govern a little less than 130 million Americans by my count, which means that Republicans govern about 200 million. But after the upcoming election, Katie bar the door. Not Katie, Texas, because that state will still be governed by a Republican for sure. But among the 12 most popular states in the union, other than Texas, 11 are likely to be governed by a Democrat. And if Brian Kemp can't suppress his way into the hearts of Georgians, it could be 12 states or 12 of the 13 largest states. Could be. Of the most populous states, Uh, Some aren't up for election, and the Democratic governors of states like California, New York, Colorado, Pennsylvania, they will still stay governed by a Democrat. But here are the latest real clear politics polls in states that are currently governed by Republicans that could turn Democrat. In Ohio, Cordray, the Democrat, is up by two. In Florida, Gillum, the Democrat, is up by 4.7. In Illinois, Pritzker, the Democrat, who hopes to unseed uh, Rauner, who's the Republican, is up by 15.5. In Michigan, Whitmer is up by 11.2. These things can change. Cordray's lead for one over a popular former senator and current attorney general, Mike DeWine. Uh, That might not hold. 538 actually says that Georgia where Stacey Abrams trails by two in the real clear politics polling average, Georgia has a greater chance of becoming Democrat than Ohio does. But still, the picture is this. 
it should be a really good day on election day for Democrats winning governor's seats. 538 is actually saying, remember the statistic I just cited, 120-ish million Americans, 127, I think, governed by Democrats, going to go up to 200 million Americans. And the thing is, your governor means a lot more to your life than your senator. There's an exception. If your senator is the one who turns the Senate uh, to the party of that senator, then that's very important. But if your senator isn't the hinge or linchpin senator, you'd much rather have a governor who you like, who reflects your ideas about policy and governance than a senator. Now, I, as someone from outside your state, I care more about your senator because your senator from your state affects me more. But for a person inside the state, governor's a lot more important. Now, I have been monitoring some gubernatorial races. Gubernatorial. Not the ones you think. Did you see the Florida debate? I saw the Florida debate. You probably saw the Florida debate. I'm not going to talk about the Florida debate. I bring you Wyoming where the Republican, Mark Gordon, should win by, I don't know, 25 points. But I'm not even going to play an exchange between Mark Gordon and his Democratic rival, Mary Watch the Throne. This is Gordon talking about his stance on taxes, and you'll hear, a little quietly, his conservative party opponent, a man named Rex Rammel, who goes by T-Rex. Let's hear that. And I oppose taxes. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes you got to hand it to T-Rex, teeny tiny little hand it. That is a Wyoming zinger, ladies and gentlemen. I admire a state like Wyoming where everyone is pretty much nice. Two of the three debate questioners had first names of geographic places, Dallas and Tennessee. So neither were Wyoming. And the best dressed person in the room was the long shot third party candidate. T-Rex was pretty sharp, pretty well groomed. On the other hand, you have Rhode Island, which is in every way the opposite of Wyoming. Big versus little, well-groomed versus, well, let me tell you about Rhode Island. Incumbent Democrat Gina Raimondo should win easily over Republican challenger Alan Fung. I don't want to talk about them. I want to talk about the guy who came up with these killer nicknames. We have a choice between whether we want to elect flip-flop Fung or give away Gina. That speaking was Joe Trillo. Who does he remind you of? Dismissive nicknames, breaking into a mocking voice accompanied by frantic hand gestures, a background in real estate. You played stupid. Oh, they didn't cash my check. Oh, you didn't know they didn't cash your check? And, 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 and you're now in, the, in a place that's worth $4,000 a month. How do I know? Because I own the building across the street. Trillo has blondish hair, is kind of overweight, wore a long red tie, and doesn't like to brag. I don't want to brag. But he really does like to brag. I don't want to brag, but there isn't anything in the construction of this entire building that I couldn't step in and do as well as any of the contractors. From the lighting to the plumbing to the cement work to the ceiling work to the air conditioning work, nothing. Petrillo is running for governor, not commission of HVAC. And he's trailing by, he's trailing by just about everything. He's barely showing up in the polls. He did show up in the debate, however, big time. And he brought at least one rival right down to his level. We don't need a loudmouth in uh, Smith Hill again. Uh, You know what? A loudmouth might get something done other than a a wimpy guy like you. Alan Fung playing the dozens. Oh, snap. 
To me, the Joe Trillo experience was almost nostalgic. A plainly ridiculous character who has no experience and no judgment being treated exactly as he should be, as a funny distraction. Gina Raimondo, though flawed, is just so much more experienced and so much more competent that Trillo isn't even anyone's serious alternative. He's just a jester with a gift for analogies that all seem to wind their way back to the field of construction. They built a huge brick wall and they put 250,000 people up on the wall. That's the computer system. They linked it with mortar joints that turned to jelly and the bricks were popping out. And for two years we've watched the, uh, the computer people try to push them back in and they slid out here and there. Some say what we need in America are leaders to inspire us the electorate, take us to new heights. I think what we really need is for us, the electorate, to be sensible enough to avoid the blatantly obvious depths. That's it for today's show. PRBNMA and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. One cares a lot more about getting the fades right than the other one. If I have to be honest, I call it the Daniel Gap. Some have dubbed it the BNMA chasm. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcasts. I found it surprising that she endorsed a policy of different toilets based on political affiliation, as articulated here. Look at where the Republican Party is today. Look at where the Democratic Party is today. The gist. I'm not saying the gubernatorial map looks kind of blue, but Miles Davis saw it and smiled. Miles Davis smiled. Oomperu, deperu, deperu, and thanks for listening.